tuning in to the Employee of the Month show. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and this episode was taped live at the Writers Guild. And by live, I mean it was a one-on-one interview with the writer, Ted Travelstead, who is an editor at Vanity Fair, and he's also a comic performer in his own right. It was such a delight to talk to him and talk about his journey into showbiz as he continues to thrive. I sound like a therapist, but he's just so funny. I, When I first saw him perform, I felt the same way I did when I listened to Alan Partridge's uh, first season on the BBC, which I highly recommend you downloading for Knowing Me, Knowing You. Aha! Um, I think the radio version, personally, the first season is the best, but I got the same delight from seeing Mr. Chad Travelstead on stage. Please check out our interview. I'm here with Ted Travelstead. I'm very excited to be giving him the fabulous Employee of the Month award. Um, you're going to have to hold this as a temporary award for Oh, right now. this is, my God, it's more beautiful than I ever thought it would be. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much. I, I started working on a speech, but it just, I don't feel like it would do the award justice. So. My assistant is like the most incompetent person and didn't get the award together in time. Fire them. I'm going to fire myself yeah. immediately. <laughs> standard. I mean, she's totally disorganized. Well, you know, there's, you know, there's not much you can do. Once they go down that road, you have to get rid of them. Yeah, the help yeah. is just, it's very hard finding a good help. She's a horrible housekeeper as well, but a wonderful cook. Mm. That makes all the difference. Your first movie was very young, it looked like, on IMDb. Is that you? Is that the same Ted Travelstead? Yes, my first uh, paying film was this movie, a sequel, a horror film, Children of the Corn Part 2. But I was, like, 21. <laughs> but I played, like, a, you know, supposed to be a teen killer. How did you get that role? Did I was they see you and they thought, this is a teen killer? Uh, I was living in Norfolk, Virginia at the time. I had graduated from college. Where did you go to school? Old Dominion University, which is in Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, f- for the first and only time in my life since then, well, until recently, I had an agent um, there. Uh, the talent agent in Norfolk, and uh, her name was Marty Terry, and she was an older woman. Her and her husband ran this um, talent agency, and uh, he was very much, he reminded me a lot of the character, I don't know if you've seen Glengarry Glen Ross, yes, Jack yes, Lemmon's character in Glengarry Glen Ross, this guy. They, I, I think they were both named Marty, Marty and Marty. But anyway, I, she sent me down to North Carolina to audition for this role. And, uh, you know, I got this role. And it turns out that she actually uh, had two roles in the film. And I got to kill her both times. So. Well, that must have been cathartic. On it was. I think a lot of people want to kill their agent at one point or another. Maybe. I don't know. Um, and so I got to do that. Now, were you in school acting? So did you already know? The last two years was just all wanting to do plays and act and you know, and think, and and we actually had a really great department head. It was a small school; it wasn't an acting school, but she brought in these like really amazing, kind of international theater artists. And, oh, that's um, really interesting. You know, Nina Monk and um, um, th- this guy Tadashi Suzuki. I ended up going and doing an internship after after college, uh, studying the Suzuki method, which was a very... What is that method? It is a method. It's not the same method that... that there's a violin method called the Suzuki method, but this is it's a guy, Tadashi Suzuki, and it's, a, it's very... Um, 
it, it wasn't him, but it was people that had taught with him. And it was a theater up in Massachusetts. And it's very, it's almost like martial arts. Um, it, it's a lot of physical movements and uh, poses and breath technique. And basically it gets you in touch with your body as a physical instrument. See where you hold stress, where you're on stage, how to use your breath. It's really interesting. I mean, it was great for a year. And then I was like, no, I'm out. You know, a lot of people stayed on and... But I was like, I took what I could from it and, like, bolted because I didn't want to. There could, I mean, it wasn't, there, there, it wasn't a cult at, by any means. But I could see how there was almost a cult-like atmosphere once you get into this kind that, of. That is interesting, though, because I feel, I certainly feel that way in comedy. There's, there's, like, there's a level of people who are just fans. And I don't mean just the people who come and attend, but people who will take classes and perform but on some level, they're really more interested in the community mm-hmm, yeah. and the fandom. And I can see that in theater, too, where you'll hear, like, this person's obsessed with Stanislavski. Yeah. Or, you know, they're obsessed with, uh, tell me the general uh, Suzuki, Suzuki method. You know. or, but, there's a, yeah, there's many different. Or UCB. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's only UCB or nothing. Or it's only um, Stella Adler or nothing. And I think that that's, like, a certain level versus the next, which is you're pulling from all of these things for I'm, you to create your own self as an instrument. I'm a firm believer in in jumping out of any nest that tries to get me to stay too long. I mean, just take what you can. And it was hard. I was, you know, the, the, the guy that led this, uh, the, was the artistic director of the theater that taught us this stuff was very dynamic and he was very, you know, and he was kind of a yeller and, you know, he's the, and I don't do very well with those types, but for no. a year I could put up with it. But it was very hard to say, like, I don't, I'm not interested in coming back, you know, and ultimately I think he understood, but, you know, I think he also had a level of like, well, yeah, you, you're going to go be famous. You're going to go, you know, and, and like he would make fun of me later when I came to visit, you know, and it's like, are you famous yet? Are you, you're big oh, time. Oh, but that's, you know? I mean, he's so undermining. Well, yeah. sure. It is. I mean, I mean, it wasn't, he was all, yeah. I mean, the guy, you know. I mean, was, you need fame as an actor. That's why people aspire for it. I mean, sure, there are some that it's narcissism, but like in general, like the reason that I think any of us aspire. Well, I think we want validation, you know. Not just validation, but you need work. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I look at it as a much more, you know, in an ideal world, no, you wouldn't have to be famous, but that is what unfortunately often gets you more jobs. Yeah, the, the buzz yeah, around, the you know. But it's interesting, that whole cult of, around any group, you know. And I've seen it around UCB. I mean, I've been in New York long enough where I was here before UCB started. Yes, yeah, me too. And, and you know, I remember I used to do improv with, like, a group. There was a, a studio next door to CBGB. Uh-huh. It was, like, the CBGB gallery, and it, and um, I I don't know if I saw it in like backstage, but it's just like improv classes, free group, you know. So I used to go there once in a while and do that, and I thought it was fun, you know. But I never had to pay money to take a class or to get involved with that kind of thing. And I, I, there's a lot of great things about UCB. It's just I've like it's yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting being kind of on the outside of it from. You know, the get-go, you know, now it's like people come to New York or, you know, want to be in comedy. Oh, you go to UCB, you take a class, you get it, you know. But 
I mean, you know, it costs money, you know, and it's like, it's very, and it's very much a, kind of, there's a whole monopoly of like this UCB, like Second City is like the feeding ground into the professional world. And if you're not a part of that, you know, it's very easy to be overlooked or, you know. But even within it, like, I mean, I started, I, my first workshop was with Tina Fey randomly in D.C. And um, not, a, you know, I was... I was working for a nonprofit. And she well, that's what kind of got you into comedy. Yeah. Right? But I mean, like, that's like, you know, so even in an ideal world, it would sound like, and then Tina took my hand. And two weeks later, <laughs> I was writing for <laughs> SNL. You know, like. When those, that outsider group suddenly becomes very exclusionary themselves, you know. Well, that's what's know. happened. I mean, now yeah. comedy used to be the outsider's perspective. And really now it's the cool kids. And it's the cool kids who are making fun of everyone else. And that's like what's hot in comedy. And alternative comedy is, is like a misnomer now. Yeah. It's and like it's, saying indie film and it happens to be produced by Robert Redford or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> uh, Sundance. Um, yeah. I, I think, yeah, it's a, bu- it's a bummer because it's like what – I don't know. I, there's this uh, aspect of snarkiness that's, that's kind of just invaded everything, and it's, I just I f- I'm such a fan of kindness and being kind. Well, it's because you're such a good person, Ted. Oh, <laughs> so you leave you you leave school. You do this part in this movie, and you head to New York. Not right away. Where did you uh, go? No, I I actually um, I what did I uh, I then I moved to New Mexico. Which is where I'm from originally, and and I just because I thought okay because I'm just a, kind of a chicken shit, and I've, I've always had kind of ambition issues, and I was like, all right, I'm going to go to New Mexico because that's almost Los Angeles, you know, I, I'll be halfway Not there. Not quite walkable, but maybe bikeable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I lived there. I lived there for like close to six months and worked, and then decided. Um, decided to go back to, to D.C. where my parents were. And I, I moved in. I, I lived in D.C. for close to a year. I almost wore my 930 Club t-shirt today. Oh, wow. I, like, was this close to where I'm wearing a different black t-shirt. I should have worn that one. That was that, – and that was a great time. I mean, for stuff – I remember I, there was a bouncer that I befriended um, who worked at the 930 Club. What was his name? Oh, I know you're going to make it a black man. He <laughs> his name was <laughs> no he was he was but he worked right, at he was a professor he was a philosophy happening. professor at Brown is that right and yeah. he was bounce I love and that. he worked as a bouncer at the 930 oh, club him. and you were living with your folks I was living with my folks and I was trying to decide what to do and and then my stepsister had moved to New York and she was like look I live in Queens with my friend we have this little tiny extra room just come move here you know Fabulous. yeah I mean I, she really. And that was July 93, and I came up, and I lived in this little room. Testimony and, to blended families. What's that? It's a testimony to blended families. It is. I mean, and she, because she's younger than me, but she's always had this hustle to her, you know. And um, But she, her and her friend, my roommate, that they were my roommates, uh, they were both uh, uh, dan- dancers, uh, exotic dancers at a place called Goldfinger's. In Queens. Oh wow! And uh, she certainly did have a hustle to her. <laughs> she she did, and it was. I, I thought you were just talking <laughs> metaphor. Well, I am, I am, but in this particular instance, it was very specific, <laughs> uh, and so that was really an eye-opening experience, because you know, just these women. Just getting, you know, because I'd been to strip clubs before, but like... I don't know. I have no idea. So you'll have to explain to me. So, yes. Well, just getting the perspective of the people that 
work there, you know. And and then I actually briefly trained to be a DJ at one of these places. Oh, wow. At Goldfingers. At Goldfingers. Which is a good name for a place if you're going to DJ, I feel like. It is or isn't? It is, I feel like. It's, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's got uh, – yeah, it's, it's always a – Creep me out a little bit. <laughs> but I'm thinking more James Bond, I guess. Yes, of yes. I'm thinking just dirty hands. So, okay. I mean, it could be the OCD but, in me. You no, know? no. I mean, you have a more hands-on understanding <laughs> of what it's like to be in a strip club. I don't. So, and so, but you know, the DJs are the guys that introduce the 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 music and the girls, and you know, um, you know, gentlemen, gentlemen, get out your wallets. You know, next up to the stage is Peaches. You know, and uh, the talent. And, What's that? The talent. You call them girls. Yes. The oh, yes. The talent. Yes, exactly. Which are women, um, primarily, are? at least in this place. And uh, but I couldn't do it. I, I was. I tried it a couple times, and it was just. It was just too. It was just like uh, just bad. Just a bad vibe. Bad environment. You know, uh, the, the girls and the management, and the, it just. It just felt. You know, and uh, but it was really, from a sociological standpoint, it was. As opposed to a communication standpoint. Yeah, well, (laughs) communications. There wasn't a lot of communication going on, you know. It was a lot of one-way communication, you know. But it was just – it was eye-opening to see these – see just the people that would go there. Mm -hmm. Sad. The women that work there and just really the game that, you know, that they played, all of them. How did how did going there and even you know potentially working there? It seems like you did work there a couple of times. Well, trained, but I wouldn't. How did that training um, help you when you went on to work at Vanity Fair? <laughs> oh wow! How did working at Goldfinger's, the hustle bustle strip club, oh, prepare you? Man, I, I mean, you know, being a I think well, it just looks so good on a resume that. <laughs> That it was, you know, how could they? Pass? Is it on your LinkedIn profile? It, uh, you know, it, it isn't because you know, I I haven't put it out there. Yet. I have my actually my own special Goldfinger's website. Is that um, true? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's my own. You know, I just want to highlight that time in my know. life. You know, <laughs> the two times I trained as a DJ at Goldfinger's. I just that's one one website I have. No, um, it. I don't know what it. It, it didn't. It. I it really didn't help at all. I don't think. But it, it. But anyway, so I did that, and then I was a messenger for many years. I'm sorry. A bike I'm, messenger. I, I'm, what's that? A bike messenger. <laughs> no, it wasn't okay. even that cool. <laughs> okay. I was a foot messenger. Okay. For like ten years. You could also just say I didn't have a death wish, and that's why I was a foot messenger. I mean, well, true. I. But God, I mean, I saw like. That was and they, they, at the time. That's a serious uh, there were, underground culture, the bike messengers. Yes, yeah. and they, they were they, they, there was a group called the X Men, a bike these bike messengers at the time. This was basically ninety three to two thousand four. I mean, roughly, I was there, and uh, but I would see all these bike messengers, and there was these guys that would dress up in like shoulder pads, and all these weird pads and costumes, capes. And, not capes because it wasn't quite – they didn't cross the line into superhero territory. But they but they were like – they were badasses. I mean a number of times would see like like taxis pulled over with their windshield broken, like guy, like bike 
crumpled cop, you know, guy with pads, like, you know, just crazy stuff. But I was just walking along, doing my thing, carrying... This friend who was a comedian, Mike DeStefano, and he he rode a motor motorbike, and he had this. Um, it's not a pitchfork, but it's something where you hit people. A crowbar. Oh my gosh! And it was like the first, and I was like, "Why do you have that crowbar?" He's like, "Because the cab drivers get too yeah. close." And it was yeah. the first time that I realized, like, "Oh, these people are as crazy as the drivers." Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just yes. such a moment. Where I was like. I don't understand why this guy's like carrying around a crowbar, and he's like, "Well, because the, when these t- cab drivers get out of line, yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> like, Whoa! And he's on a motorbike, not a bicycle, but it it fundamentally changed my picture of the landscape. Where I'm like, "Oh, I see. Yeah. Everyone's crazy." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It's no, you know. There's no yeah. The pedestrians, the drivers, the bikers. Everyone in New York is dangerous and armed. I was on foot. I was carrying large amounts of cash around the city. Is that true? What it is? Yes, I have worked for a foreign currency. Exchange. So I used to go to hotels and uh, galleries and like. How much money did you make? Oh, not 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 enough. But I had insurance, so it's like one of those things that it's just like I stuck with a shitty job for way too long because I had insurance and because it was a day job that I could put up with while I did other things. You, you sound know? like you're describing a thirty year old marriage, but I mean that's true with jobs in general. That you st- you know look, it's it's nice to be able to pay rent. I miss it. Well, especially with when you're wanting to be a creative person. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, there's not been a time when I haven't not had two jobs, you know? I mean, it seems like... It's since I decided to be an artist. Uh, up, you know, from from ages 15 to, you know, 22 uh, or whatever, I always had one job at least. But, uh, um, yeah. But, yeah, I was... You know, and I remember... I, I probably... I don't know. I could have put myself out there in a different way and tried to, like... But I just stayed in this thing because it was like, all right, it's something. It's something. So and you're foot messaging during the day. And then mm-hmm. what are you doing at night? Are you doing comedy? I was playing in a band oh, for wow. a number of years. And then I was in a sketch group. And then, uh, well, no, I was when I first moved here, I was in a theater group. <laughs> because a lot of the same people that I went to school with moved here. And we started this uh, theater group. So we, we did, like, we built, we did some original plays and like went to fringe festivals and stuff like that. A lot and of then, leotards. What's that? Leotards. Uh, yeah, oh yes, yes. Leotards was actually the name of the group. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and I did that. And then I was in a band. And I just kind of did all these other things. Sketch. Cool. It wasn't until a couple years ago that I started doing stand up. Um, okay. I see. So you were just experimenting in all these different areas that you yeah. like, that you have some talent in, and you want to explore. Which yeah, awesome. I mean, that, I think that's always been my blessing and my curse. And I've always, it's very easy to think of it as a curse because it's like some people say, I want to do stand-up. So that's what they focus on for 20 years, and then they get there. I, I do believe it is a curse. I think that the, the person who is the math uh, the most prestigious math professor like just focuses yep. on the number seven, doesn't look at eight, could care less about six. And, like, so then he gets, you know, a chair and a table at some university, mm-hmm. and he's really well-regarded and gets prizes. I, I'm like you, minus the talent, but I have oh, so many stop. interests. And you, by the end of the week, I haven't gotten the script done because I've been doing, you know, I tried to do a storytelling, and then I pitched this article, and then I did this show. and Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's – that's 
what's happened to me in a lot of ways, you know. And, and so, and the, and the um, anxiety around ambition. I have a whole host of oh know, yeah fears and anxiety. Otherwise, we'd be in LA already. We'd have been there from the beginning. Yeah, I, you yeah. know. And I did go to LA actually from 2004 oh, wow. to. Uh, 2006, well, January 2006, I came back. We don't need to know the specific date. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let me get my uh, date book. Um, you, I've got a date book that goes back to uh, college. What's that? Yeah, please get out your, your Palm Pilot and tell us <laughs> about it. Um, what were you doing in L.A. then? I moved to L.A. Um, uh, after – this was 2004, and – my wife and I, she just, September 11th kind of just, just really did a number on everybody, obviously. Were but you living in Red Hook then? No, we were living in Williamsburg. Okay. And, so um, you were nowhere near the towers, but it was very traumatizing. No, well, but I was working at 57th and Park, and I'm, I came in that day, you know, and, there, you know, heard like, a oh, plane hit the trade center and oh it must have been a small plane and then obviously everything went down and then my mom was working at the pentagon at the time so oh wow it was like a double whammy of like you know she was fine but i didn't but it's still traumatizing it was like a half hour where i didn't know you know i had called her and said okay everything's cool i'm okay and then suddenly somebody's like you know a plane hit the pentagon and then there was like a half hour that i didn't know you know, if what was going on with her. And then I found out she was okay. But then I just remember, you know, I walked home that day and, you know, down 2nd Avenue and, and just, you know, saw those people covered in ash coming up, you know, and walked over the Williamsburg Bridge. And um, my The office that I had work on, worked in, which was the bunker, which is the, the mayor's office, it was, it was blown up. And my I remember, like, my old boss, she ran into windows in the world because her husband was the manager and you know he didn't come out i mean i have my cousin's friend died i mean it's just hor- it was horrible and yeah. i so i see how the culture I, I was joking about it because it was it was so traumatizing i just sort of joke about it because it, it was so no I'm, no i mean well but i yeah we that's you know we make jokes about things so to deal fled. with them sometimes but we yes we ultimately i mean this was three years <laughs> Three years after, but I think it was just it was, she. We just wanted to leave, you know, and so we didn't know where else to go. And I had gotten some very low-level TV writing work. I mean, I wasn't in the writer's room. I wasn't able to kind of be an advocate for my own work. It was an it was a very odd situation. But I thought, you know, hey, I did this thing, and everybody's out there, and well, let me go out to LA, and I can hustle up some work, and you know, so. That's where we went. But and it is so depressing on so many levels. Like, I feel like part of it is we write so many things. Like, I have all these scripts. And um, mm. I remember, like, I sent a script to a mutual friend of ours, and he's like, I don't like it. And I sent it to the same script to three other people, and they're like, I love it. And the truth is, it's just subjective. You yeah, know, like, you're totally. You're just, like, sitting there, and I, of course, only listened to the person who didn't like it. But, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But, like, it was an interesting thing where, like, all these showrunners were like, it's great. You know, my one friend who you know as well, like, he's a writer and he's like, no, this sucks. You know, and I, like, took wow. that more importantly because, like, I think he's funny even though these these people who could possibly hire you are like, we'd like to hire you. Um, but the depressing part of it, none of these things get made. None of these things will ever see the light of day. I could pitch a thousand articles that may never yeah. go anywhere because I'm not in the system yet. And so here you were, you were almost in. Yeah. And, in fact, many ways are in, right? You're, like, pitching – they want you to pitch. Yeah, I mean, I you know, this it's not a show that did well and and barely anybody even 
know, you know, has heard but of it. All the work that you put in. It's like the New Yorker cartoonists where they do 10 cartoons a week and oh. they hope one gets an in. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean more. Yeah, no, like, I mean, that's, that's, that's such an, I've talked about that before. Uh, just that whole concept of these of people who are obsessed with getting a cartoon in, in the New York, not in the New Yorker, not not to mention the ones that who, who do these are, work these are the, the circuit, people who are you know? in the New Yorker yeah. already, and yeah. this is their main and yeah. if not sometimes only source of livelihood. Yeah, and like so that's what I meant that you're doing all this work. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it may or may not get in, and that's life. No, that's I know, and that, it was a weird time because you know, and then you have to remember that I had a day job at the time, so that you know, I'm I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm mostly writing at night, and I'm busting my ass to pitch and finish. The, you know, because I'd pitch these ideas, and then it's like, okay, well, write these three up. So then you, know, you have to get them in. You know, by the end of the week, and and it, in a lot of ways, I was like, I'm doing it. You know, this is my first writing, real writing job. You know, but it was such a bizarre kind of weird. Like I was by myself in Brooklyn, you know, not and I, really working hard. And then, it, then it took a really long time to get paid. So it was a frustrating experience. And then you go, moved to LA, though. Yeah. Then, then I moved to LA because I, I thought because we didn't know where to go, and we were just like, you know, this seemed like let's go here, and it ended up being a pretty disappointing experience. To be in LA, it was hard to find work. Yeah, I'm a terrible advocate for my own talents. I'm not a hustler, and I'm not, you know. And so it's like I tried, and but I did try well, stand up for the first is, time out there. Oh, that's great! But I only did it once, it, and it went okay. But it was just like it just didn't. I just didn't continue. It's so strange, you know. Um, and then you came back to New York. Then our friend Mike Sachs, he uh, said, "Hey, you know, they're looking for." A freelance researcher at Vanity Fair, so I went and did it, and then they were like, "Hey, it, it was working well," and 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 my boss John was like, "You want to stick around?" You know, and what eventually, does it entail? Because I think it's so interesting to be a researcher for a magazine where they do in-depth articles. Um, well, it's it's really it's basically fact-checking. You know, that's a big part of it. And so, it's, what does that entail? And it, so it entails. Um, Basically, every month, and this is what I like about it, is that you know every month you get a different uh, story to work on. So there's variety there, you know. So cool. Um, sometimes you'll get like one big long story. Sometimes you'll get like some little, you know. There's other little smaller pieces within the magazine, and uh, and you go on the internet and check. How do you do it? How do you? How, well, it depends. So let's say I get a really big story from. You know that that's going to be a. Let's do a typical Vanity Fair story. So it's about the Kennedy family, or Princess Diana. Exactly, it's about the Kennedys. Um, uh, So I would get uh, the 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 story the in the in the earliest form, um, uh, and then I would get in touch with the writer, and uh, and the writer would send me all his backup materials and research. And a list of people that he's talked to, and uh, and all you know, just basically what went into writing it. And then, um, so I would take a look at the story, and I would take a look at what he's given me, and just start chipping away and making sure everything's correct. And then I would talk to the legal department, and the legal department makes sure that you know talks to us about you know what this 
what is printable and what might there be, might be some problems, you know, or you know, did the, make sure this person. We need to get a response from this person, you know, before we say this, you know. So when an article, um, when it comes to the attention that something wasn't correct in an article, do you get in trouble? Does the writer get in trouble? How? What happens? You know, after it's oh, been that's published. That's never happened. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I, I mean, mean, in general, I didn't mean you specifically. But. No, I'm kidding. But I, I, I no, it would be, it would be us. I mean, it depends on the situation, obviously. But this is definitely the most accountable I've ever been in a job situation. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, let's say it depends, on, and it depends on the mistake. I mean, sometimes a writer can have bad backup or some sort of research that yes, you no, think that, is a valid source absolutely. and it might not be, you know, or, um, but, but then sometimes, you know, if you human fallibility, I might just miss something or get something wrong or, but, but on a, you know, a serious investigative reporting piece where it's about the CIA or it's about something going on in Egypt or something like that. And they've contacted someone. Do you, how do you follow up with their source? It's a, I mean, it depends on the situation. Sometimes you contact the source directly and go through, you know, ask them a list of questions to make sure that the, the factual things are correct. If the story is uh, sensitive, you know, if it's a story about somebody and contacting them would compromise the story. Yes. If it's a story on terrorism, I'm thinking, you know, how do you get some government to open up to you after they've opened up to that person? Can you even get them on the phone? I mean, sometimes you have to go... Sometimes you can't go directly to the source. So sometimes you have to, um, you know, rely on um, two or three secondary sources or, you know... Or or even something like a Lindsay Lohan-type story where, like, the... People may not be credible or give the same story twice, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of, there's a lot of shaping of the piece to make sure that what, you know, uh, I mean, the magazine obviously doesn't want to get sued, you know. And so there's, you know, sometimes you're talking to people's attorneys and sometimes, um, and and there's way to ways to phrase certain things so that, you know, you're not held accountable for you know, if somebody's, but then there's just stuff that's sometimes just not printable. And that, I think the hardest part of the job for me is, is, is being kind of, you know, um, what do you mean not printable? Because there's a judgment call that it's not appropriate for children or what? I don't know. Oh, no, no. Just, uh, I mean, le- legality issues. I see. You know, that just like, like, can you give an example? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't think of one, a direct example, but I can I can just say, like, you know, if, like, say, um, we're doing a piece on um, Tom Selleck. Okay. And I'm going to give this, this is why, okay. just a really bad example, so that we can just not, you know, so you know that it's just an example. And, you know, um, let's say Tom Selleck is, you know, some scandal has happened. And uh, so we've got, you know... Um, a person, you know, a friend or somebody who knows him um, that wants to say off the record or even on the record just says something really slanderous about yes. Tom yeah. Selleck. Yes, let's say, they know, say like, Tom Selleck was having an affair with every foot messenger. Yeah, I walked in on him, you know, rubbing himself on, you know, whatever. On the foot I, messenger's bad foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
This is hitting a little too close to home. Sorry. No, I, uh, but you know, they're just like, I mean, it's just. It, so you're it, not going to print that because it's just salacious and. Yeah, I mean, there's some things you just can't, you just can't print because you can't, you, can't you know, even if you put them on the person that said them, they're still slanderous. And that's a terrible example, obviously, but the, no, you but know, I, I think, it, you, I, it you makes know. sense. It's like, you know, is this printable because it's factual is one part of it. And the other part of it is, is it provable? Yeah. And so trying to figure out, like, to what extent is that just something that someone said and may or may not have happened, but you can't prove it? Yes. And is that necessary to be in there versus, like, is this really true and we have to have this in there? I think that that's where you're trying to dick. Like, that detail doesn't matter. But let's say Tom Selleck was stealing a lot of money from the TV show that he's working on. That is something that you do need to figure out. Yeah, and 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 helpful. and that usually there's a paper trail for something like that, so that's something you can figure out, you know. And you would know from carrying money before; you would have known if the suitcase was heavier or something like that. Exactly. So that you'd so, have to con- contact someone like yourself. Yes. So that, therefore, you know, all my life experience uh, sometimes helps in these uh, situations. So, um, how long have you been at Vanity Fair? Since 2006, so seven years. That's exciting. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. It's the best. I call it the best day job I've ever had because, you know, I still do a lot of other things. I you know, was... it's, 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 it's great. It's a great place to work. It's a, it's a neat place to work. But obviously, um, you know, I'm still doing other things. So let's talk about those. I, I, I just admire it because I'd love to work with um, Mike Sachs of you. That's probably p- part of it. But it, it seems very exciting to be doing research in a way that's relevant and current and non-academic. But in addition to that, you've been writing – you've now worked on two books. First, you did a co-authoring, Our Bodies Are Junk. Yes. And yes. I assume that that was about communications in terms of biblical there was communications. This, it was a, a type of communications, yes. It was a, a parody of The Joy of Sex. And um, I did uh, – I was the cover model. And I did a lot of the modeling inside the book as well. So. Uh, and it's nice to have a day job where you don't get fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, I mean, or or maybe you know. I well, guess. I try to keep the things very separate. I don't, you know, it's I don't, uh, I don't talk about my day job much, and I don't, uh, and not that I mean, it's a great place. I just don't, I don't Most carry myself as the face of Vanity Fair, or, you know. I, I would argue that it also may be a reverse. For Vanity Fair, may not have you as their cover model, also. So it's they, it, absolutely. Yeah. I am not. Uh, I am not in any way a. Um, uh, an asset to them other than oh, no, res- no, no, as no. a I researcher. Was, was, no, no, no. I, but no, I was I'm just only not. mocking. Wait, hold on. I want to clarify. I was only mocking that they tend to have very, very beautiful people on their Okay, covers. now you're digging a hole. <laughs> really? <laughs> and you are so beautiful. Because, I mean, never... you're looking right at me. <laughs> Uh, yes. But I, I do actually want to be I, – I just dug myself into a hole that I didn't mean to dig myself into a hole. What I meant initially to say was that most people who are writers at any of these magazines, whether it's Vanity Fair or The New Yorker, uh, have to be writing books and have to be getting their names out in other ways. So it is something that is an asset to these magazines to have them. And it's the same way with professors. They're also writing books. And then you forged your own path and wrote your own book, The Petraeus Files. Yes, I, uh, I, yeah, I was offered that opportunity at the beginning of this year, and it all came in such a strange way after the Petraeus scandal. It wasn't an idea that I would pitched. Uh, it was kind of a hired gun uh, 
for it. Um, but, uh, and I had like two weeks to do it. Really? Yeah, it was really weird. But it was great. It was actually kind of the ideal way to write a book was, uh, you know, we want you to write this book. You know, I, I turned in a sample of what I thought it would be and they liked it. And then they're like, all right, we need it in 10 days. You know? Are you serious? Yeah. How many pages? It was like 25,000 words. Oh, my God. Something like that. Did was you take it, off work so you could do this? I took off the la- I took off two days of work near the right near the deadline. Um, but otherwise, I just worked at night and just cranked it. Out. Did you do a whole outline first and then just follow that outline? Yeah. Well, I started at first. Like I had a lot of different theory, you know, because I wanted to. The great thing about it was that it could be. It didn't have to be. It's a parody, I'm guessing. Yes, yeah, a parody of like all the correspondence between Petraeus and and. Uh, his lover slash report the reporter yes and 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 then the socialite jill kelly and then the you know just the other kind of players in, involved um and uh it's but it's yeah it's a total spoof I, I wanted the timeline to be correct so i had the timeline kind of like taped up on my wall of like when certain things when they started when they met when he went to afghanistan when you know all the that type of thing but otherwise and at first i was like okay well for the first two days i just panicked and then and was just like you know and then and then i started writing thinking okay let me just write chunks just chunks where this and i don't know where i'll put it but then you know just what could work and what could be funny and then i just started then they were like okay can can we have what you've written so far and i was just like Wait a second. What? Uh, you know, I've got 10 days to do this and you're, you want you already you want what I've written so far, you know. And so then I started from the beginning and then I just thought, okay, you know what? This is the best way to do it. And I just started writing chronologically and then yeah, that's how it kind of that's But it amazing. was a, it was a wild. Will you write another book? I think yeah, I I I think I'm I will, definitely. I I I'm thinking about it. And you often write humor pieces, you know, and, and do satire and storytelling and stand-up. Yeah. Um, you've also done videos, uh, Vine videos of, of twins talking. Yes, I have a Vine other. series uh, where I play twins, and one of them is kind of, um, it's almost, I, it's, it's kind of like a, a Mice and Men, a little, like one of them is kind of dim, and the other one's kind of a, Kind of a jerk, not a jerk. He's just more serious. You get the you get the idea that he's the one that has to that pays the rent, and, and the other one's kind of a dreamer. And um, you know, obviously in a vine, you have six seconds, so it's not a lot that can happen. But um, but it's been but I don't know. It's just this weird idea I had, and people started liking it, and now I've done like fifty seven of them. And it's awesome. I really encourage people to check it out. Um, what is the name of it so people can go look at it? Well, there's a Tumblr called Twins Talking, which is like no G on the end of talking. Um, and But if you go to my Twitter page, which is at Trumpet Cake, um, there's a link to it on the, on the Twitter page. But I page. think this is amazing. You basically said, like, what's the best day job I can have stuck with that day job, which is a really interesting day job. And it enables you to be exploring stand-up and storytelling and writing books and writing satire and acting. Yeah. I mean I feel like I've worked so many crappy jobs in my life like, you know, in warehouses, delivering furniture, you know, washing dishes that like – I mean 
I finally lucked into one that like is great. And I, you know, I mean, who knows how long, much longer I'll be there, <laughs> especially after this, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but who, who knows? Uh, you know, I, but I know, I mean, I want to continue doing creative and artistic things, but it's great that I found a place that, yeah, I've been spoiled, you know, comparatively. All the other you worked hard for done. a long time. I mean, I wouldn't say spoiled. I think it was a very smart way to still feel completely the way that it feels lucky is that you can feel nurtured and and still do something that you're intellectually engaged with during the day yeah and then at the same time be able to explore things that may or may not make money um with the like care that it needs ted this is a real joy to have you on the show it was my pleasure look at this award i'm still i can't even i wish you guys could see this thing it's like it's got to be at least four feet tall right the other part that's so interesting is that it looks so much like you, you know? I know. I mean, I – I, it's weird. I, it's, a, it's a little – I'm a little awestruck because I've never seen – you know, you look in the mirror. You don't get a real 3D sense of what you look like. Yeah. But seeing this and the you work do. that's gone into it. And, and I, I think that – This when, isn't real ivory though, right? No, it's not. And okay. when people, people look at your picture on the Employee of the Month Award – I think they will disagree with what I said before and said, actually, I think he'd make a great Vanity Fair cover. <laughs> move over, Angelina Jolie. Yeah. Certainly move over, Princess Diana, cover number 743. Yes. Yeah. Let's get Ted Travelstead on the cover. Yeah. Even if I'm, you know, even if I've got Kennedy next to me and, you know. In a bear hug. Yeah. Exactly. That actually would be really funny. <laughs> Especially if you're in a bee costume, which is the last <laughs> thing I saw you in. Or cicada costume, excuse me. Yes. Um, Ted Travel said, thank you so, so much. It was my pleasure. I had a great time. That's it for this episode of the Employee of the Month show. Thank you to Ian Mazoff, Joel Arnold, and Gordon Smith, who are the phenomenal editors at the Employee of the Month show and edit these podcasts together. Thanks to all of you for listening. Do go to the employeeofthemonthshow.com's website where you can find out about future live tapings and other ways to get involved. And that's it. I hope you're out there chasing your dreams or um, self-medicating about how they're not working out for right now and then going back to chasing them and then chasing that chaser with a really good chaser. Personally, right now I'm into Malbec, but whatever your chaser of choice is, take it. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Katie Lazarus. Bye. Bye.